Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. Um, in case you have not seen me before or you have forgotten who I am, which uh, my work has had me out of here for, uh, I think, almost most of the Sundays, the last two or three months, so um, I'm not offended. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm one of the elders here. And Matt is taking the one day off that we give him all year uh, before we lock him back in prison for another year. So uh, we thought it'd be nice to give him a little bit of a time off. So y'all yeah, be stuck with me and that. But uh, <clears throat> I am very glad to be here and always excited to be a part of this church and see the growing that's going on. Um, we're really excited to be coming out of the Job series. Uh, that was something that we'd prepared for six months and been talking about and all that because uh, if you want to know what a dumb question is, you ask people, uh, have you ever been through a tough time? Have you ever gone through something hard? And it's like, uh-huh. Uh and you're waiting for that one idiot to stand up in the back of the room, I haven't, life's great. And, you know, if somebody did that, they would have a hard time trying to get to the parking lot without uh, meeting a few fists. But um, So coming out of that, um, and again, by divine providence, you, you come in with some ideas I've been thinking on for months and um, here for this Sunday when knew Matt was going to be out. Um, and so I just wanted to go through kind of following that and going, trying to put some boots onto what Matt had gone through there in Job and just ask the question, what does trusting God look like in tough circumstances? So we're all going to have it. We're all going to face it. We're in a fallen world. And, and again, if you haven't gone through it, get ready, it's coming, uh, and that. So what what are tough circumstances that we face? I mean, it can be stuff that goes on with your health. Um, I, you know, we've all faced some things um, for ourselves, but a lot for others. Um, I've had a friend that's had their six-year-old daughter have to go through leukemia, and you watch them deal with that news and process through that. I've had a grandpa that's had cancer and died from that, and, you know, that, that's a terrible thing to go through. That's a racking time to have to go through. Um, there are social things that we have to fight through. Um, what if I came down and said, yeah, you know what, Matt really needs a second week off. You're on deck next week. Come on up. We'll give you the microphone and you can get that because, you know, uh, the two greatest fears in life are death and public speaking and not in that order. So <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, there's the social aspect to getting up and doing things or relationships with friends. And then there's the physical that, um, what if I said that there's been a challenge thrown out to you from some guy to step in the UFC ring, and you go, okay, all right. And then I say, well, the guy is nine foot nine and been trained since his youth. And oh, by the way, this represents our war with USA and ISIS. And so rather than have these two armies fight it out, we're just going to have these two guys fight it out. And they've got this hairy, girly, you know, brawny you know, guy in the ring ready to go do combat with you, and you're our choice. Go ahead and head on in there. And uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't want to jump in there. I don't think anybody else would. But um, So as we face these tough circumstances, I, I wanted to go through, um, if you want to crack your Bibles open, it's going to be 1 Samuel 17 is where we're going to camp out. Um, so about a third of the way into the Old Testament there. Uh, 1 Samuel 17 um, it, the whole chapter goes through the account of uh, David and Goliath. Um, I would love to read that for you all and just go through that, but uh, we're going to just have to take it in, in phases here to make sure we get it, uh, everything covered here in time. So um, this story has kind of had 
you know, I've got a two-year-old now, and we're reading. We've got all kinds of versions of Bible stories that we're reading her, and that's one of her favorites is David and Goliath, and, and so it's almost reached this mythological kind of theme to it. You know, she walks through, and it's like, David, bonk with Goliath, fall over, great God, yay, and, and so that's the extent of it to her and what she understands. And so as we go through, we, we have a, the same tendency to maybe make these things mythological and kind of detach ourselves from it. Um, so our, our job today and what we're going to go through is going to kind of show the real circumstances that were going on here, and then we can apply these to our lives. Because as we're facing these tough things, you know, again, thankfully I'm probably not going to be asked to go fight a guy in a UFC ring and have all this stuff, so I'm not going to face that specific circumstance, but I'm going to have some similar ones in my life. So um, as we get in, and again, you can kind of read through as we're going through here. Um, I'll read a couple of these sections, but um, as we start in verse 1, kind of the scene that we're being presented here is we have two armies that know each other well, uh, the Philistines and the Israelites. Um, they've been fighting around for a, a couple centuries at this point. Um, it goes back to the days of Samson um, in the Judges. Again, uh, read Judges through the Kings, and that's like this whole historical um, kind of thing of Israel that gives you a good picture of, of where they've come from, where they're going. Uh, but there's all kinds of the, the skirmishes going on with Samson. Um, earlier in 1 Samuel, they just had, uh, again, an, an encounter with Israel that... Uh, uh, Oh, basically, the, the ark was stolen by the Philistines, and, and God inflicted them with um, plagues and mice and tumors and all this. So they, they are well familiar with each other, um, and this has been going on for quite a while. Um, and that. So what you've got is the scene that we're walking in on is basically there's a valley and two mountainsides, and you've got one army on each side, and we're kind of sizing each other up here and going... Okay, and one of the principal things in warfare is you don't want to give up the high ground. You know, you're up there, there's such an advantage to being able to attack an enemy, especially in this day with no guns, uh, that they have to climb uphill and try to fight you uphill, and you can just fend them off. So you don't want to give up that high ground. And so you've got these two armies that are sizing each other up in a valley in between. And so we're looking at that, and then all of a sudden, while this is going on, there comes this bellowing offer from down. One guy steps down in the valley and starts shouting up at the Israel army. Um, and we're going to see that in uh, ver uh, chapter 17, verses 8 through 10. And we'll read that part. Um, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come, up, come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. And let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So without seeing the scene, you may just be like, well, come on, man. How big of a boy are you? All right, I think I got this. And then we find out in the chapter that Goliath is essentially, you break down the, what they used as measurements and, and that in the day, and essentially Goliath is nine foot nine. And you figure, I'm 6'2", and I'm taller than most of y'all. He is another three foot three inches. My hand can reach up eight foot. So the palm of my hand is eight foot, so you've got another foot and a half 
above my palm is where Goliath's head is. Holy cow. And on top of that, what we have detailed here is basically he has 125 pounds worth of armor, and that's all that's told of us. You know, he's got other parts of armor that we don't know the weights of, so at minimum, he's got 125 pounds of armor, and he's got a spear with a 15-pound spearhead. And so basically, the, what's being said here is don't mess with me. Um, I got you. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to face with this guy. And there, there's a reason that, you know, when we see modern-day fights and all that stuff that are controlled environments and that, there's a reason that things are divided up into weight class. Because as you go in, um, if I'm up against somebody that's, you know, I'm, I'm right about 200 pounds. If I'm up against a 150-pounder, I have a lot of advantage. If I go up against a 250-pounder, I'm probably going to get whooped. You know, it, it's just that kind of thing. And again, it, these fighters, it, especially today, they're all pretty close in terms of training. So an argument can be made, okay, I'm going to put Bruce Lee against, you know, some doofus on the street. Okay, yeah, Bruce Lee might get, his, get him, even though he's got 100 pounds on him. But if fighters are equally trained, weight and size plays such a huge factor. Um, I, I went to uh, high school with a kid that, uh, well, I shouldn't say kid, he's an oaf. Um, but the guy, well, his nickname was Stump, if that tells you anything. Uh, the guy basically was just short of me, but round and stout, and he could bench press over 450 pounds. And so just an absolute bear. Um, he would go and spar with his karate instructor after, after the class was over. And this guy was a multiple black belt and all that. And my buddy would just stand in the middle and let this guy take shots at him and wail at him until he get close enough and grab an arm and pull him in. And then the, the highly trained karate instructor is having to tap out. As soon as my buddy got his arms around him, it's like, nope, fight's over. And that. So those are some of the things that we have to face when, when looking at these things. That's why in today you, you would say, okay, that's not even a fight. You know, I don't want to pay money to go see this as entertainment because he's just going to whoop him. And so that's kind of what's being set up here. In that. So essentially, what we're looking at is Goliath is an undefeatable enemy. Uh, nobody's even close uh, to being able to do that. And so he knows that, and he's going out and throwing out some high-stakes betting to say, okay, not only can't you whoop me, but let's do this and let's represent the whole war here and let's save everybody. So now the stakes are even higher that, okay, maybe somebody's got the guts to go try it with them, but now, you know, the shame of losing everything for, you know, the battle and, and the nation is going to pin you down. So, again, the, the pressure is that much more um, to go that. So what Goliath is essentially doing is he's melting the hearts of the Israeli warriors. And so rather than a one-on-one -on -one focus and that now it's, you know, me compared to you, and, and it just ain't going to work. And, you know, we know that we're gonna, not going to make it. Uh, and on top of this, um, and even worse, is his taunts as they go on are not necessarily man-to-man, -man, but it's nation against nation, and essentially at this time, the, the gods were considered the gods of a given nation. And so he's insulting the Lord God, saying, even your God can't defeat me and coming down there. So it's getting personal. It's, it's cutting to the core of who Israel is. And we know he's been at it for 40 days. In verse 16, it tells us that. Uh, 
And so we know they, they've been enduring this for a while. Nobody stepped up. And, and so all you're hearing on the you know, Israel side of the mountain is clanking armor and uh, people freaking out. So uh, we know that, verse 11, uh, the Bible has all kinds of lines of understatement in here, and this is one of them. Uh, when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So, again, you see that and you just go, uh, yeah, I, I think they have good reason to. So, so here's the scene that we've got, and then in walks David. And so who is David? Again, you can read the chapters before to kind of get some of the backstory. I would love to do that today, but um, again, time's not on our side. And that, so in walks David, so you can imagine he's kind of a typical college kid that basically he's working four jobs, and he's, you know, shepherding sheep for his family. He's running errands for his family. He's Saul's um, armor bearer and court musician. And so he is all over the map here of, you know, figuring out life and, and where he belongs and, and what his calling is. And that, so he's coming in as the normal course of business. Um, again, if you're just watching along, verse 17 through 20, you'll find where he's running the errand for his dad and bringing stuff to uh, his brothers and their commander and all that to keep things rolling there uh, while his brothers are in the army. And his brothers are all kind of the grisly, tough fighting type. And again, we, we know that from a previous chapter uh, and that. So here's David, and then he overhears Goliath's taunt. And so, assumingly for the first time here, and that so how does David respond in that he rises up to meet the challenge? And you go, okay, well, how big of a guy is David? You walk into chapter uh, 16 before, and you find out he's the puny little runt that wasn't even considered in passing through the sons to be a king. And uh, Samuel was the prophet at the time, and he had gone to, the Lord had sent him to David's father to choose a king to succeed Saul. And they pass by son after son after son of, you know, oh, here's a man of great stature. This must be him. And the Lord's like, nope, not him, not him, not him, not him. And they didn't even allow David to pass by until everybody else had. And it was like, well, we got the little runt in the field. I mean, he's the last one that's left. Yep, he's the guy. And so we've got that. So we know, again, David is, again, not like nine foot seven or, you know, carrying 120 pounds of armor or something. So we're not even close. You know, we're night and day. It would be, you know, Judson coming up here and picking a fight with me. We're just like, seriously, dude? Uh, all right. But, you know, that. so again, the, the odds are not in his favor when we look at that. So, of course, he goes to Saul. He's in his court and has a little bit of access to him. Goes to Saul and says, hey, I'm ready to go take on this guy. And the, Saul's gentle at this time and says, uh, no, <laughs> basically. And turns him down, says, no, we can't do this. And so David, again, pleads his case even more, that feeling called to do this and, and that we're going to read this section here in uh, verses 34 through 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And this is the uh, Tom commentary of opinions here, but I'm, I'm kind of reading this as Saul basically saying, You know what? This guy's been at it 40 days. Something's going down here anyway. And so why not send this kid trip the wire and let this battle just get going and get the fight on. We're, something's going to happen here. So rather than have this constant tension, again, that's my opinion, throw it out the door. You know, it, it could be wrong, but um, that's kind of how I'm reading it. The Lord be with you. Have fun, little guy. And, and that. So as we keep reading there in 38 through 40, so now that the decision's been made to go, then Saul clothes David with his armor. He puts a helmet of bronze on his head and clothes him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them, uh, which basically means he has no experience with them, uh, is what that root word is. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took in his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistines." So as we read this section, um, these two sections of Scripture, what I want to pull out of this and what's really important, um, again, where this breaks down the mythological kind of mindset that we have, like, ooh, the dream stone just got slung, and, you know, we get that. Um, if you put yourself in David's boots, he doesn't know that. The only thing he knows is this big brute is insulting his God, and somebody's got to stand up for it. He could be grease in the valley within minutes here. And Goliath could take him out, and no questions asked. You know, that could happen. And so, as David, if you're in his boots at this time, that's what you're facing. You got a, the pressure of a nation behind you. You got your brothers that are mocking you in this section. Like, who are you? Get out of here! You're just here to watch the battle and do this. So they're they're mocking him. They're not supporting him. And you've got this very real possibility. Um, and so what I want to really take a look and what jumped out at me here is verse 40. He says, he took staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones. Why would you pick five stones? Because you're expecting to miss. And that's pretty key there. You, again, he's, he has faith in God, but he's also using practical wisdom and his practical experience and knowledge to go, okay. I've got faith in God, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen in one shot. So I'm filling a pocket full. So again, you look at it and go, he's trusting God, but he's also using the resources and experience that he's had. And the same with the armor, that it's like, well, this is cute, but I'm going to get creamed out here. I can't see through the helmet. It's too heavy. I'm not limber enough. I can't, you know, he's like, I'm just asking to die. That's not my experience. I want to get away from that. I want to do what I'm familiar with doing. And that. So, um, as we know, it only takes one stone, but I think that's the key thing as we kind of get to the end uh, of the sermon here later is just realizing that as David's approaching this, he doesn't know that. And he's approaching it as rational and reasonable as he can. And so, as we go through this, um, we can just imagine being in that shoe. Why in the world would he ha ever think that he could pull this off? You know, it's like any of us going out for an impossible task or something like, what, why would you do that? Why, why would you be so stupid as to assume that this would be the case? 
Well, at least with David, we've got some previous scripture here to give us a little bit of an insight in that. Um, Again, in chapter 16, we won't read the part there, but um, essentially what we talked about before is Samuel has anointed him as king. And so there's a little bit of a dissonance there of going, okay, either Samuel was dead wrong and I'm going to be grease in the valley or somehow God's going to deliver me from this. And so the king was essentially supposed to be this shepherd of Israel. And so this is what you've got, the, the whole picture of how he brought his experience up of, hey, when the lion came and the bear came, I took him out because I'm the shepherd of this flock. They count on me to take care of these giant problems. And so essentially that was what the king should do, is there's a shepherd of Israel. When there's those kind of opportunities, the king needs to step up and say, okay, you are my sheep. I'm going to handle this in the power of God and in the light of his calling. So we do know that that is at play, and that could be something in the back of David's mind that um, is going on. There's a little bit of a feeling of invincibility that, okay, God's called me to this role, and this is in my way, so I'm going to charge through it, and he's got to figure it out. You know, Otherwise, Samuel's wrong, and we've got bigger problems to deal with. So... Um, And we also find out where David's confidence is placed. Um, And we find out in verse 45, and we'll read this whole section here too, um, is that David said to the Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Which again... Sling, stone, no sword, and there's no iron tools in Israel. They have to go to the Philistines to get their tools sharpened and all that. So again, that's, that's a fun dynamic as you're fighting them in a war. Um, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the, host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that the, this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. So, wow. How often do we take that stand against our problems? Uh, So again, he's drawing his past experience, so he's standing there equipped with what he knows and is familiar with. Um, No armor, his sling and stone, and the confidence in God. So what happens? We read the story, bonk, Goliath falls over, dead, you know, he gets delivered, uh, and again, it, that's the part where it just gets, you know, so sensationalized. But again, it happened. You know, David had to run down into that valley after this big monster and sling a stone and just hope that it worked. And so we know they took Goliath's sword, cut his head off, and, you know, ended up that Goliath's taunt backfired on him and his army. That instead, because at this time, again, the, the nations, the gods represented the nation, so to speak, and what we see here is that their God didn't exist. That as soon as Goliath fell, all they just melted and ran. They're just like, you know what, we have no divine authority or assurance here. Uh, we were counting on this big monster to save us and to make our point. And so when that didn't happen, they realized the entire system that they built their life on is bunk, and they're out of there. And so Israel chases them out, and... Uh, all that. So at the end of the day, God's given the glory. Um, David advances in life, and you know, again, we see in, in coming up chapters, you know, his eventual ascension to the throne, and 
all this stuff that was promised ends up coming to pass. So as we look at that um, and we back up into chapter 13, we can contrast and compare the, the decision-making process of the two kings. So we've got King Saul, who's the first king of Israel. We see how David handled things, and we're just going to go into one example on Saul, even though there's many, um, and that, uh, that kind of make this point. So if you want to turn there, I think it'll be on the screen behind me too, but uh, 1 Samuel 13 and verses 5 through 12. Um, so don't, don't sweat too much all the names and the, the numbers and all that stuff. Just kind of the points at the end, just kind of let it wash over you here uh, at this point. But uh, So verse 5 through 12 in chapter 13. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Big army. Uh, just deal with that. They came up and encamped at Mishmash to the east of Beth-Avon, and when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns, and some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him were trembling. He waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel. So basically what we have is a week before is Samuel sent Saul to do this specific task, say, hey, go here, route the enemies of Israel. I will be here in seven days to offer the sacrifice, kick this thing out, and we'll get going. So he had a, a very specific command from a specific proven prophet of God. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the, offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the off, offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed time that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, and I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So this is a huge deal. Again, culturally, we kind of look at it and be like, well, what's that matter? You do the offering before, after, whatever, who does it? Again, very specific from the Lord, you know, as his ordinance of, of holiness, that, okay, this has to be done through the priestly line. This has to be done for this reason. If nothing else, he specifically told Samuel, this is how it's to roll out and this is how it's to be done. And so again, what Saul's doing is he's looking at the situation through similar eyes that David did in that he's taking his past experience. This isn't his first battle. This isn't his first situation. And he's looking at the enemy and looking at his own camp and sizing them up going, okay, this army, there's as many as the sand in the seashore. It's basically just says it ain't worth counting. It's a hillside. They're going to whoop you. And They've got that on that side, and he sees his men, again, as we read the progression of the story, we know that they're hungry, we know that they're tired, they just did a big march, and they're super intimidated, and so the people start peeling off when they see that Samuel, because they think Samuel's bailed on them, and so Saul is now going, okay, I'm going to exercise my practical, rational decision-making and look at this and go, okay, we need to do the sacrifice to get these people going before I don't have any people to get going and before everybody bails. 
And that was exactly what he was not supposed to do And that. So what we look at and just realize is that Saul's actions and Saul's decision-making were based on his ability and his ability to assess the situation and assess the outcome. And we need to be very careful doing that um, because we need to allow for God to move and allow for ourselves to not be in the position of absolute knowledge of going, okay, just because I think it's going to turn out this way does not mean it's going to, even if what God does doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, I, I've got a story that as we had a, a previous church and we were a part of a missions conference and it was one of those things, we great conference, we walked out of it and it was you know, like, wow, man, those are wonderful people. I'd, I'd be glad to send them money and there ain't no way I'm going. And walked out and I felt peace about it. It was great. And I was like, okay, good. We'll write him a check and wish him well and all that. And wasn't but a couple days later that I'm sitting in a random food court like 50 miles away. Some lady comes up to me and says, uh, I don't know if this is right or not, but God told me to tell you something that you're supposed to go on a missions trip and here's where and here's why and here's what's going on and boink, boink. Like, what the... How in so again, you just you never know how God is going to intervene, and so ended up going on the trip. And again, not something I would have chosen to do based on my rationale and logic, but it was one of the better things for me to go do and open my eyes, allowed me to grow, allowed me to change. Um, again, I could have told God no, and who knows what would have happened, but. Um, so the, the, there are things that can be interjected um, that God will do to change things up um, in that. So as we look at these two kings, and their decision-making pattern is awfully similar. It's just the very end that's different. Um, what we need to understand is that the circumstances were real. Um, this is not mythological. This is not a made-up situation or a story or a parable or something where it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that situation will never happen. These are real historical circumstances where the people involved are intimidated, overwhelmed, looking at this as impossible. Like, this, this is something that cannot happen. It's Moses hitting the end of the Red Sea and going, okay, I've got two-plus million people here and the Egyptian army on my tail, and I'm staring at a bunch of water and no boats. Like, this is impossible. I cannot do this. And so the circumstances are real. Uh, both had a clear calling and a direction to follow. And the decisions are either going to line up with those purposes or they're not. Um, David was told that he is to be king, and Goliath is in the way of that. He's insulting the nations of the army, and na the nation of Israel, which is the army of God. Um, so there, there's a clear objective that David has to accomplish. Uh, Saul, the same thing. You were told verbatim, in specific detail, what you are to do and where you're to wait and all that. So you have a very clear, distinct calling that can go through. Um, the circumstances came up just in the normal course of life. I mean, Saul's the king, and he can't control the Philistines. They're doing their thing. He's doing his um, it wasn't a manufactured circumstance. David and Goliath was not a manufactured circumstance. Um, Goliath didn't know who David was. He didn't pick the timing or choose him out of the audience of, okay, you're the guy I'm going to face and you know, tear you up in front of 
the army here, it's David running errands, and he hears the taunt. He knows what he's supposed to do, and that. So again, it, it's the normal course of life. Both kings used their experience that they've had, um, used their knowledge, their judgment, their intuition, their counsel, all the resources that they had on hand to assess the situation and prepare for something to do with it. Where they differed is where their trust was placed. And again, it, it's like I said, it, it seems like splitting hairs in a lot of this stuff, but it's like super important as we're dealing with the stuff in our life and that. So we're not supposed to put our trust in our abilities. We're supposed to put our trust in God. We use our abilities in our intuition, in our judgment, in our experience, and everything that God's given us. Those are the tools that he gives us to use. We're not to trust in them um, to go do this. Um, like I said, I'm up here. I am not a gifted speaker. This is not my... I wasn't charging through the door to get up here. Um, circumstantially, I arrived here. And so I, this is a giant I have to face to stand up here and, and do this. But again, it, as I prepare, I just go, okay, it, it's the Word of God that's going to say something. I need to saturate myself in the Word of God, see what he's got coming up here, and just present that. And whatever happens, happens. Um, if my jaw flaps and leg twitches or something, then so be it. Um, and that, so if I trusted my abilities to do this, I ain't got it. And I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, we have to trust in the Lord that he's going to be the one to bring out the results. So, again, that's the key thing that we've got to look for. So um, as we translate that to us into modern times, like, okay, great. They had Samuel running around, and he was telling them specific things. If I had Jesus coming to my house and saying, invite that neighbor next week to service and sit with them here, or then, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to follow that stuff. No problem. And that, okay, uh, well, we do have a rather exhaustive and immense guidebook for what we are to do and how we are to assess situations and how we are to go about things in the Word of God that these guys did not. They didn't have the Book of Romans. They didn't have Ephesians. They didn't have Paul. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have any of this. Therefore, they need somebody like Samuel that's giving them some of those directions uh, and that. So as we're to do, go about this, we're basically to do very similar process to what these kings did uh, and approach that, only we have the word as our counsel. Um, we've got, again, God says this is plenty. This is all that we need to address our situations and circumstances. Um, so what, what specifically do we do when we get faced with a tough circumstance? Um, I have very rarely been in a tough circumstance that required like an immediate snap decision that very second. Those do happen. Um, we had to put a dog down, and it was one of those you, you take it to the vet just thinking, oh, yeah, just, you know, tie her up and, you know, fix this up, and we're all done. And when we leave, we had to put the dog down. And just through the course, of it was just ended up being, had to be a quick decision. And, and those things do happen, and they are tough. Um, but by and large, um, I've found that God is very merciful and gives us, typically gives us windows of time. That that news comes, we have a chance to react, work through things. 
um, and all that. But as we go through them, uh, the first and foremost thing, which is almost always the last thing that we all do, is pray. Is bring that situation before the Lord, ask for discernment, ask for God's leading in the situation. Um, and James 1.5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. So we have this resource. Start there. Start there. And the, this is a sermon to myself because I don't do it. Um, I'm, I'm, again, typically the guy that's relying on what's in my head first, and then at the end of it, then I pray for it. And then I get the direction that ends up being this giant bubble of self-focused waste of time. And I've worked through all these scenarios that don't matter and don't apply in its, this direction. And so again, it, pray first. Um, it, it will save you a lot of headache, worry, um, anxiety, all that good stuff. So pray for it. Evaluate the situation and take a look at what's come up. Um, and just ask yourself, what decisions need to be made? What biblical values are at play here? Um, you know, you're getting pressure to go out with your friends. If you're a young person, you're getting pressure to go out and go drink. It's like, okay, am I underage? Yep. What would the Bible say? Uh, yeah, don't do it. Um, you know, what would, even if you're not underage, what would the Bible say? Well, it's probably not a good idea. Um, just in the context of our culture, I'm living my life as a believer, trying to be a salt and light. Uh, what does this look like? You know, so evaluate the situation and just kind of break it down into what values are getting asked of you and are at play and what decisions are being asked of you. And then study the word for direction. Um, there's plenty of resources in here um, in that, but then again it comes up like, okay, well... I look up pornography in my concordance, and it's not in the concordance. How do you expect me to deal with this modern problem that obviously does not have a biblical solution to it? Like, okay, well, great. What does the Bible address about this? What issues are at hand? Well, essentially, the Bible says, obviously, lust is at hand. Um, Christ equates that with adultery, so that's at hand. Um, so you, you have your participation in these materials um, are involving you in two very explicit sins that the Bible lists out in that. So just because it says, does not say the word pornography, does not mean that there aren't principles that apply to this. And again, so everything that comes up is going to be broken down in here. Again, there may not be Facebook, but there's gossip. There may not be some of these things, you know, specifically listed that we have modern technologies for, but you break it down, the principles are. And we can start figuring those things out. Um, in the case of pornography, our commands are to flee from it and expose it to the light and truth, and which means find accountability, uh, get in somebody that can get in your life and help you deal with these issues and break out of it. Um, it's designed to keep a, a self-focus and keep you in the darkness. So what do you do? Get that thing out in the light and, you know, expose it to the truth and just get away from it and that. So as we continue, what else do we do here is we seek counsel um, and seek the people, uh, I say qualified friends, seek the people that have your best interest, which is what is going to glorify God most in your life. So seek out the people that are going to give you 
real counsel. And again, not telling you what you want to hear, uh, not telling you just nonsense, but seek people that are going to tell you, even if it's hard, because some counsel we hear is hard to hear, and we don't want to hear it like, um, yeah, you are lying here, or you are a gossip. Well, guess what? That challenge allows you to confront things in your life, and we need those. Um, so don't run away from those, but you know, go to those people again that do that in a loving manner. It doesn't have to be a accusatory, heavy-handed thing. You know, we don't want that. But um, and obviously, in these examples, show us um, we can pull from our experience and the lessons that you've learned in life. Um, these are the God, the tools that God has provided you um, to walk through your life. He's given you this experience to do something with, um, even if it's a negative experience or a positive experience. It can teach you how to handle these situations and how to walk through that. So, again, don't be afraid to use that and seek the path that God would take. So, seek what is going to bring him glory or bring him bring you closer to him. And so think about that. I was like, okay, in my current situation, I feel like, you know, God would go this way, or my counsel is telling me that, you know, God would make this choice. Well, guess what? He's the one that is most wise <laughs> and knows everything. I, I think I'm going to follow what he would do and how he would live his life. Um, and then finally, some of the most difficult counsel can be is wait on the Lord. And we learn that through Saul and Samuel through a negative circumstance that um, we look at um, that where Saul jumped the gun and said, okay, I'm just going to take care of this because the ordinance matters. And Samuel rebukes him and says, no, do I, do I want obedience or do I want sacrifice um, when he's speaking for the Lord? And the Lord wants obedience. Um, the sacrifice doesn't mean a whole lot, you know, without having the heart of obedience. Um, so waiting on the Lord is key. Um, and one of the verses I want to leave you with is Isaiah 40, 31. Um, this is a, a very encouraging verse here, but and says, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why in the world is any of that true? Because it's not us doing it. That's why it's true. If we wait, and we're getting bludgeoned by circumstances and beat down, I ain't flying. I'm not running and not growing weary. I'm not walking and not getting tired. It's because God is providing the strength to do that and to face that circumstance and to walk through it properly. Um, so it's, it's important that we wait on the Lord um, because like in Saul's example, you look back even further in history is Gideon. Um, he came at an army with 10,000 and God said, it's too much. I'm going to start cutting your army back, cutting your army back, because, eh, might have been a fair fight. He cuts it down to 300 people, and they go route an entire army with 300 people. And who gets the glory out of that? You know, God gets the glory. Not the armies, not the men, not anything. So that's a job well done. That is what we're looking to do with our life. So tough circumstances are a reality. They are going to happen. And, that, and what we do with them is as important as what we face because the character that we walk through it and that those circumstances are what God uses typically to grow us and mature us and make us more valuable and more useful in the kingdom. Um, that's why we can say we can embrace circumstances and look at suffering with joy because we have the assurance that God is going to use that for a purpose.
if we don't have a biblical framework and understanding, this circumstance can be for nothing. And I'm just suffering and wallowing in pain and, and nothing's going to come of it. Well, you know, we have the assurance that God has called us through this and he's going to make something good of it. Um, again, I don't expect that to wipe away the pain and, and that the situation's real, the impact is real, and that we don't want to deny that, but that can be a thread of hope that you hold on to as you go through that's like, okay, God can make this good. He can still make something of this, and I'm not wasting my life. And you look at Job, and that's the example. Is God had no idea, or Job had no idea why he was suffering. He just knew he was, and at the end of it, you know, God walked him through it and made him the finest example of perseverance that we have in the Bible. And that, so trust in the Lord as we approach these circumstances. Um, like I said, we, we just wanted to go through this material as a footnote to the Job series. I know that's pretty heavy and you can be left with a lot of times like, okay, I guarantee you that Satan and God aren't making bets over my life. And so let, let's break this down to real stuff. And, and so I hope we've been able to do that today here. Um, so let's pray and we'll close out here. Dear Lord, uh, we just thank you so much for your calling on our lives. Um, God, we thank you for giving us your word and all these wonderful stories uh, that we can pull from. Uh, God, you pull no punches in your word that um, you don't give us fluff. You don't give us um, just the just lightweight stuff in here. You give us the meat of Scripture. You give us real life. Um, as we read through these stories, we read through even the genealogy of Christ and, and his ancestors, almost every one of them are messed up. And you, you give it to us real. And God, I, I think that's because life is real and you expect us to live it in a normal, sensible fashion. God, you, you ordered the universe um, in such a way that, you know, we call this normal life is how it's all fallen out here. And that, that's how you expect us to live um, until we make it to eternity or until you come back. And God, I just thank you for uh, sending Christ uh, to live as one of us. Um, so we have a God that is not unfamiliar with our circumstances and what we go through, but we can take joy that when we pray these things up that you have dealt with most of these in a personal fashion. God, that you uh, care enough to send him, that you cared enough to um, let him die for our sins, uh, that we may be restored. And we just thank you for the grace that you've offered us. Um, God, may you... Give us the strength to face the circumstances that we need. Give us the vision um, to see the biblical end to that. Um, God, that you would uh, lead our hearts and guide our steps, uh, that we may serve you, that we may grow in you, and that uh, as a body of believers, uh, we may shine the light of your truth uh, to this community. May that be evident um, from the pulpit, and may that be evident in the lives of uh, the individual members, that people know something's different here, and people know, um, and they see it, and they see that it's you, um, and not anything that we're doing. And we thank you, in the name of Christ we pray in. Amen.